Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. It was first published in 1962 and went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. One of the things I found when I was looking for books about the First World War was how often this book jumps out um, when you're doing any kind of research. It's one of the most commonly read books about the First World War. It's one of the uh, most well-known. It's definitely considered a classic. And what I'd like to begin with is the fact that I find it very interesting that Barbara Tuckman herself was not a career academic. In the foreword to the book, written by Robert K. Massey, he wrote, quote, Her relations with academics, critics, and reviewers were wary. She did not have a PhD. Quote, It's what saved me, I think, she said, referring to Tuckman. Believing that the requirements of conventional academic life can stultify imagination, stifle enthusiasm, and deaden prose style. The academic historian, she said, suffers from having a captive audience, first in the supervisor of his dissertation, then in the lecture hall. Keeping the reader turning the page has not been his primary concern." End quote. And I think that if any of you out there ever choose to read The Guns of August, you'll find that it's very much written as a story. A lot of the characters uh, are brought to life. A lot of times when you when you read and you do research on the First World War, you have these uh, photos in black and white of these stiff figures of generals and politicians and stuff. And I find that Barbara Tuckman, over the course of The Guns of August, really, really gave life to these people, including just like little quirks that they had. The overall tone of the book reflects what was popular at the time, and what I think is still the most popular narrative of the war is that you had a collection of reluctant allies, uh, like France and and, uh, the British Empire, pulled into a war against an aggressive Germany. Indeed, throughout the book, especially in the first third, Tuckman is very, very critical of the German government, the German military general staff. Uh, especially the Kaiser, which we're going to touch on in a little bit. What I wanted to do was use the Guns of August to illustrate some of the key themes and concepts of the First World War, um, so that not only are you, the listener, getting an introduction to this specific book, which is considered by many historians to be essential reading for the First World War, but I I would also like to use it to illustrate some of the the key things about the war, uh, starting with something called the Schlieffen Plan which we are going to talk about now. Ah, the Schlieffen Plan. In Chapter 2 of The Guns of August, entitled, Let the Last Man on the Right Brush the Channel with His Sleeve, Tuckman writes about this plan. Essentially, what it was, was the German military high command said, in the event of a general European conflict, What are we going to do? And just a little bit of context first. Remember that by the time this plan is created, the early 20th century, Germany has 
Russia on its eastern side and France on its western side, and they have concluded an official alliance in 1894 called the Dual Alliance. Count Alfred von Schlieffen was the chief of the German general staff from 1891 to 1906. And Tuckman wrote about the Schlieffen plan and its key um, one of the key things about the Schlieffen plan was that it required the German army to go through Belgium to attack France while holding off Russia. So that, that was kind of the general outline. But Tuckman explains it uh, much better when she said, quote, His reason, so Schlieffen's, was military necessity. In a two-front war, he wrote, the whole of Germany must throw itself upon one enemy, the strongest, most powerful, most dangerous enemy, and that can only be France. Schlieffen's completed plan for 1906, the year he retired, allocated six weeks and seven-eighths of Germany's forces to smash France, while one-eighth was to hold her eastern frontier against Russia until the bulk of her army could be brought back to face the second enemy. He chose France first because Russia could frustrate a quick victory by simply withdrawing within her infinite room, leaving Germany to be sucked into an endless campaign as Napoleon had been." End quote. Tuckman further elaborates with the following, quote, France was both closer at hand and quicker to mobilize. The German and French armies each required two weeks to complete mobilization before a major attack could begin on the 15th day. Russia, according to German arithmetic, because of her vast distances, huge numbers, and meager railroads, would take six weeks before she could launch a major offensive, by which time France would be beaten." End quote. The key thing here in the minds of the German general staff is the idea of, quote, decisive battle, or if you want to call it a knockout punch. Tuckman wrote, quote, Clausewitz, oracle of German military thought, had ordained a quick victory by decisive battle as the first object in offensive war. Occupation of the enemy's territory and gaining control of his resources was secondary. To speed an early decision was essential. Time counted above all else. Anything that protracted a campaign Clausewitz condemned. Gradual reduction of the enemy, or a war of attrition, he feared like the pit of hell. He wrote in the decade of Waterloo, and his works had been accepted as the Bible of strategy ever since. End quote. So what we see here is that the German military planners, what counted here was speed and strength, hit them very hard and hit them very fast. There was an old Civil War general, uh, he was, a, I believe, a Confederate cavalry general, and he was quoted as saying, you know, the secret to victory, in his opinion, was getting there firstest with the mostest. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's the key to the knockout punch. So you'll see the Schlieffen plan 
there was this obsession with the timetable, the timetable, the timetable, because the Germans knew they had a limited window uh, in which they could secure victory because they were already going to fight Russia and France. And that's not even counting the British Empire, which uh, in the summer of 1914, they didn't really know if they were going to come in on the side of France. Well, even a lot of the British didn't know. But anyway, that's the key to the uh, the Schlieffen plan, was this decisive knockout punch very quickly. Little bit of reference, the man I just mentioned, Clausewitz. Oh, who was that? Karl Philipp Gottfried von Clausewitz was a Prussian general and military theorist. He was huge in German military theory at the time. Uh, and he was very famous for his writings. He studied the campaigns of Frederick the Great and Napoleon extensively. And the really top brass of the German military in 1914 studied him a great deal. And one more thing I'd like to say is where does Belgium uh, come into play here? Belgium was famously neutral at the time. There was actually a treaty dating back to 1839 where they had been guaranteed their, uh, their neutrality. The Germans at the time did not believe that Britain would enter the war uh, over this really old uh, treaty. The Belgian army in 1914 had seven divisions. There were six infantry divisions and one cavalry division. The centerpiece of their military strategy in the event of an invasion by the French or the Germans or even the British. Uh, keep in mind, when the war was really getting heating up in the summer of 1914 during the July crisis, Belgium still didn't know, like, they had a feeling war was coming, uh, but they, they didn't know really what direction. It could have equally have been the French. And the French administration during the July crisis stressed time and time and time again to their generals, telling them, do not be the first ones to enter Belgium. If you are the first ones, then we might lose the war because it triggers this whole chain of events. Germany, as part of the Schlieffen plan, uh, had to invade Belgium. And the reason for this was, if you look for a, at a map prior to the outbreak of hostilities in August, the Franco-German border, ever since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, uh, was one of the most heavily fortified borders in the world. Then you look at the south, and there's Switzerland. Well, we can't go through there. Well, why not? One, they're neutral, and two, it's mountains. That is nightmare terrain to bring an army through. So Schlieffen had concluded we're going to go through Belgium because the terrain there is a little more flat. Yeah, there's some rivers, and there's a chain of Belgian forts. Um, I mentioned earlier the centerpiece of Belgian military strategy at the time, and that was basically have a defensive fallback line at the rivers, and we have forts forts at places like Namur and Liège. They had been state-of-the-art forts in the 1880s and 90s, but by the First World War, they got completely pulverized by German heavy artillery. So the point of the Schlieffen plan was to not attack through the Franco-German border, but to have a huge sweeping right wing that would 
go around the French fortifications through Belgium and attack them from behind. You would have a force in the area of Alsace-Lorraine to pin down the French army. Uh, the Germans gambled that the French would be obsessed with regaining Alsace-Lorraine so they would commit their best troops there. But the point of this was this massive sweeping right wing. Remember how I said Belgium had seven divisions in 1914, six infantry and one cavalry? Well, the Germans had 98 divisions and um, the vast majority of them were actually on the Western Front. I will explain what a division is later, but all you need to know right now is a division in World War I was 15 to 20,000 men. So. Schlieffen was so obsessed with insisting that this right wing be the key to the strategy. That is why the chapter in Tuckman's book is called Let the Last Man on the Right Brush the Channel with His Sleeve. He said, I want you to sweep so far and wide to the right that our last soldier on the extreme right will actually hit the English Channel. It's said, I don't know if this is a myth or a legend, but it's said that when Schlieffen actually died, he died muttering something about stay to the right, stay to the right. So that's interesting to think about. So did the Schlieffen plan work? No, it did not. If it had worked, then perhaps the Germans would have knocked France out of the war in September of 1914 and then had been able to pivot to the east and take on the Russians. In annihilating the Belgians and the French, they would have pushed out the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, which got involved in the war after the violation of Belgium's neutrality. But there's a few key reasons why the Schlieffen Plan failed. One was the resistance of the Belgians. Their tiny army concentrated on defending rivers and their key forts in places like I mentioned, like Namur and Liège, cost the Germans time and resources. In addition to this, they sniped German soldiers, they blew up railway lines, demolished railway depots, they demolished bridges, anything they could to slow the Germans. And indeed, that did cost the Germans a lot of time. So that was the first key thing. The second key thing was that the Russians attacked much sooner than expected. They did get devastated. They were absolutely pummeled by the Germans, uh, especially at the Battle of Tannenberg, which was happening right around the same time as the Battle of the Frontiers, the invasion of Belgium. So we're talking August, uh, you know, late August uh, 1914. The highest levels of the Russian military command knew that they were not ready for a war. They knew that their armies were not ready. They were not properly supplied, equipped, trained. But at the very highest levels of the Russian military leadership, they knew they had to attack now as soon as possible in order to buy time for France. And it did work. And one of the reasons why it worked is this huge invading army that was just cutting its way into France. At a critical moment, um, the Germans diverted two army corps from the Western Front to the Eastern Front in order to take place, uh, in order to take a, an active part in these battles that were happening with the Russians in the East. 
Remember how I said a division was 15 to 20,000 men? Well, when you lump two or more divisions together, you get a core. So those two core that I mentioned were pulled from the west and sent to the east, at a minimum was about 40,000 men. So it, it actually did make a huge difference. The third key reason why the Schlieffen plan didn't quite work is because in the original plan of Schlieffen, the idea was to have minimal German forces in the east and minimal German forces on the Franco-German border, so places like Alsace-Lorraine, and concentrate all your strength, all your strength on the right to get through Belgium. The German military planner who was implementing the Schlieffen plan, uh, von Moltke, he was just so intempted by this idea of envelopment and encirclement uh, that he didn't shift as many troops to the right, so to the Belgian front from Alsace-Lorraine as he should have, uh, and instead they were kind of spread a little more evenly uh, along the Western Front, and a lot of historians have said that they that may have actually cost him uh, the campaign. After these battles, there were four key battles, places like Mons and Charleroi, those were called the, uh, the Battles of the Frontiers. There was the annihilation of the Belgian forts, and it all culminated, this huge German invasion all culminated uh, with the Battle of the Marne, and this was this river outside Paris. In the summer of 1914, the Schlieffen Plan almost worked. It almost worked. They almost made their way to Paris to the point where Paris was really, really nervous. They were evacuating all sorts of civilians, politicians. The uh, government was talking about relocating to Bordeaux, which is in southwest France. There's this story, um, historians say it may have been exaggerated, but at the key moment of the Battle of the Marne, thousands of taxi cabs in the streets of Paris were rapidly commandeered to transport French soldiers at the front. What happened was at the critical moment, Moltke pivoted his army just outside Paris. So if it helps to kind of imagine it, instead of just heading straight south to Paris, he went southeast and that exposed the right side of his army. At that point, the French were in a critical position where they said, um, hmm, well, we could try to hold out, we could try to draw them out, but there were key figures at the very top of the French military leadership that said, no, I think, I think we should attack while we can. And this stunned the Germans. In fact, a lot of the German high generals were just so surprised that the French army, after getting pummeled for weeks, just outside Paris where they had retreated, could so quickly pivot and just completely change direction and attack. And that's kind of where we're sitting now. It's uh, September 1914. The Schlieffen plan has failed. Germans are fighting the Russians in the east. Belgium has fallen and is now occupied by the Germans. Northern France has fallen and is now occupied by the Germans. And we have German soldiers um, very, very close to Paris. The British army at this point has lost some of its best men. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later, kind of what happened in this early stage to the British army. One of the key effects of this early campaign, the Schlieffen plan, the battle on the Marne, stuff like that, well, 
one of the first immediate effects was the high military planners of these nations on the Western Front began to realize, hmm, this war may be a bit longer. It may be a little more difficult than we anticipated. In August of 1914, when the soldiers marched off to war, they said, oh, you'll be back before the leaves fall, or you'll be back by Christmas. After the Marne, they began to realize this just wasn't true. Another key effect was the invasion of Belgium, the violation of Belgian neutrality, the atrocities committed by the Germans against Belgian civilians, started to turn world opinion against the Germans. Sometimes when I read these things, it's hard for me to not see the Germans as the bad guys in the grand story of the First World War, especially when you look at what they did in Belgium, the fact that some of their units, their, their hats had skulls on them, they had spiked helmets, they were the first in the war to use poison gas, to use submarines against military and civilian ships, they were the first to use flamethrowers, things of that nature. When I try to put myself in the shoes of some of these high military planners of the German Empire, I feel like maybe they did these things because they felt that our backs are to the wall and we have to end this war quickly. A number of reverberations from this Schlieffen plan and invasion of Belgium uh, rippled out across the world in terms of anti-German sentiment. An example of this is the royal family of Britain, which up until World War I had been called the House of Hanover, Hanover being a, a city or an area in Germany. Well, they were renamed to the House of Windsor, and that's what they remain today. In the Russian Empire, the great city of St. Petersburg was thought to have sounded too German, so they renamed it to Petrograd. In the United States, a lot of German Americans started changing their names. So you had people changing their names from, say, Schmidt to Smith, or Müller to Mahler or Miller, things of that nature. Another thing that really didn't help the Germans was their pre-war uh, foreign affairs, their pre-war approach to international diplomacy. The famous U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt, or Theodore Roosevelt, said that the cornerstone of his foreign policy approach was, quote, speak softly and carry a big stick. Barbara Tuckman, in the first chapter of the Guns of August, entitled A Funeral, sums up the pre-war foreign policy of the German Empire, spearheaded by the Kaiser, when she wrote, quote, Officials from the Kaiser down sought to secure the esteem they craved by threats and show of power. They shook the mailed fist, demanded their place in the sun, and proclaimed the virtues of the sword in peons to blood and iron and shining armor. In German practice, Mr. Roosevelt's current precept for getting on with your neighbors was teutonized to speak loudly and brandish a big gun, end quote. So you see, speak softly and carry a big stick became speak loudly and brandish a big gun. So even when the war started, in the eyes of the world, the German Empire was already seen as kind of edgy, paranoid, militaristic, 
Uh, they're, they're quick to jump the gun or be aggressive, things like that. Over the war, this turning of public opinion just became more and more amplified, especially in the United States. When the war started, the United States was supplying food, war materials, weapons, ammunition to both sides. They were making uh, a pretty penny off that, actually, to the Allies and to the Central Powers. As the war went on, they shifted more and more and more to supplying the Allies, especially the British Empire, and less the Central Powers. Some of the reasons for this were, of course, the public opinion, two, the ancient cultural ties between the United States and the British Empire, and critically, the British naval blockade of German ports. From a practical, real-world, dollars and cents point of view, for American businessmen, it just became easier. Socially easier, but also practically, realistically easier to trade with the British than with the Germans. And that further exacerbated supply problems in the German Empire. The German actions against the civilians of Belgium, I think, in the end, backfired uh, on them. And Tuckman definitely wrote about this in the chapter, The Flames of Louvain. She wrote, quote, The gesture that was intended by the Germans to frighten the world to induce submission, instead convinced large numbers of people that here was an enemy with whom there could be no settlement and no compromise, end quote. So we see from the German point of view, they were saying, well, we warned you, we gave you advanced warning that we were coming. We told you not to destroy property. We told you not to snipe at our soldiers. We told you not to raid our supply wagons and you did it anyway. So now we're going to try to terrorize you into submission. And that just completely backfired on them. And, and it also kind of showed other peoples of the world, well, if, you, if the Germans invade, well, this is what they're going to do. Um, and it definitely went a long way to stiffening Belgian and French resolve and uh, influencing public opinion, again, in places like the United States. I'd just like to talk briefly about the mauling that the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, took in this early stage of the First World War. So August, September 1914. I mentioned earlier that I would revisit this topic. When the war started, the British Expeditionary Force was sent from England to France and Belgium. It was originally six infantry divisions and four cavalry brigades. Uh, now remember, I mentioned that a division is 15,000 to 20,000 men. Uh, brigade is a smaller unit than a division. You had three of those to a division. So you can imagine a brigade is like a third uh, of a division. With uh, ancillary auxiliary troops, the BEF that was sent to the continent in the summer of 1914 was about 150,000 highly trained, long-service volunteers. That word volunteer is key. When the First World War started, all the great powers of Europe had universal, universal conscription. You would be conscripted and there were different classes of military service. 
The youngest men were part of active duty, and as you got older, you were placed in more and more reserve units or territorial units, things of that nature. So maybe you would be part of a garrison unit or something like that. The British army was unique because they were the only one of the great powers that had voluntary military service. So their army was actually very, very small compared to the armies of Germany, the Russian Empire, France, things like that. Um, a lot of their military personnel were tied up in the Royal Navy. Uh, and this makes a lot of sense because the Royal Navy was the largest navy in the world in 1914. In a lot of the fights in Belgium and northern France, the British army uh, took a pounding and they lost some of their best men, which I uh, mentioned earlier. One of the reasons why their, their infantry in the BEF was so highly skilled is because a lot of these units, these infantry units, were veterans of countless colonial wars all across the empire. They had fought in places like South Africa, and India, uh, things like that. And they had a professional, highly trained core of NCOs. So when you talk about military history, military things in general, an NCO is a non-commissioned officer. These are the men at the lowest level that lead the men, basically. I know that sounds confusing, but it's uh, you have your privates, which are at the very bottom. NCOs are people like sergeants. Once you get high enough in the leadership structure of the officers, you start to have commissioned officers. These are people traditionally in the British military of lieutenant and higher. They say lieutenant. Uh, Americans will recognize this word as lieutenant. I do not know why there's a difference. Uh, but what you need to know is by the end of this initial campaign, so by September, uh, of 1914, the BEF had taken a lot of casualties, uh, nearly 90,000 in the opening months of the conflict. And they lost many of their most experienced officers and men. So a lot of these colonial war veterans, uh, things like that. Throughout the war, the British Empire would rely more and more heavily on their colonial and dominion troops. People like Canadians, South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, things like that. The reason why I, I just wanted to bring this up was to maybe illustrate a little bit more the size and the type of units, but also to distinguish between the conscripted armies of the continent and the volunteer army of the British Empire. A lot of the reinforcements that later came to the BF were from territorial force units. So these were regular troops withdrawn from overseas garrisons and divisions from India, Canada, places like that. Another thing I'd like to clear up before we go any further, this is very important when you're talking about anything uh, related to military history, is the word casualty. What does casualty mean? A lot of times when people look at military history, the word casualty gets muddled up with like killed. So they, they think when they hear 90,000 casualties, they think that's 90,000 dead. The best way to understand it is a casualty in a war, in a battle, is anybody who's not able to fight again the next day. Casualties include dead, wounded, uh, missing, captured, uh, deserters, 
anything like that, sick, uh, anything like that, anybody who's not able to fight again the next day. Field Marshal Lord Kitchener was the British Secretary of State for War, and in the early uh, stage of the First World War, so the summer of 1914, he initially was very hesitant to commit the BEF to the continent, and one of the reasons in the opinion of Barbara Tuckman is the following, quote, having no personal share in the military planning for war on the continent, Kitchener was able to see the expeditionary force in its true proportions and did not believe its six divisions likely to affect the outcome in the impending clash between 70 German and 70 French divisions, end quote. So he was hesitant because he's he sees this BEF as precious and just highly trained, and it's just this this resource that is to be prized and protected. She later writes, quote, the regular army with its professional officers, and especially its NCOs, he considered to be precious and indispensable as a nucleus for training the larger force he had in mind, end quote. So again, one of the reasons why he was very reluctant to commit the BEF to the continent is because he saw, okay, this war is much bigger than we expected. If we throw the BEF at the Germans now and half of them die, it's going to be a lot harder to marshal those resources, to use those veterans. You know, once those veterans are gone, you can't replace them. Uh, transforming rookie soldiers into veteran soldiers is a long, painful, costly process. And Kitchener knew this. Another thing that was complicating it was the issue of a man called Sir John French. Sir John French was the commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force. And I'd like to bring him up because he was a frequent source of conflict with his French allies. Uh, interestingly, despite the fact that his name was French, he really didn't like the French. And Barbara Tuckman wrote, quote, From the moment he landed in France, Sir John French began to exhibit a preference for the waiting attitude, a curious reluctance to bring the BEF to action, a draining away of the will to fight, end quote. She later continues with, quote, Behind the BEF, there was no national body of trained reserves to take its place. And then a little bit later, fighting on foreign soil for someone else's homeland, end quote. So this, the reason why I bring this up is because when the Germans were uh, getting into France, the BEF kept putting up a little fight, pulling back, putting up a little fight, pulling back, putting up, and this uh, really stressed out the French who are, who, and, well, and the Belgians who were pleading with them to say, hey, hold your ground and fight. And the reason why I'm reading these quotes about Kitchener and uh, Sir John French is to tr kind of try to explain why the BEF was doing what they were doing. Uh, like I said, their veterans were precious, there was the idea that uh, Sir John French kind of wanted to wait and see what was going to happen. Uh, both men were very aware of the fact that 
uh, Britain didn't have this vast national reserve of trained men in the same way that the French or the Germans. They did have, uh, you know, militia units in England and uh, stuff of that nature, but their, their regular army, people that were ready to kind of step into the BEF to replace those who had fallen, that was a very small number. And there's also, um, you see this a lot in probably the best World War I movie I've ever seen. It's called 1917, and it was directed by Sam Mendes. It's a recent movie. This line, uh, fighting on foreign soil for someone else's homeland, that actually comes up in that film. I think it's when there are some soldiers in the back of a truck, and uh, they're just talking about why they're there. But uh, that was... I that was a popular kind of thing that the British soldiers would talk about was the, the British administration had to motivate them to fight and to take a personal stake in what was happening uh, on the continent because there was a sizable portion of the British civilian political establishment, the British public, who in the early stage of the war, they kind of said, well, what does this have to do with us? I mean... The Archduke getting shot in Sarajevo, okay. Austria-Hungary, Russia, okay. I mean, even France fighting Germany. You know, they had fought 40 years, 45 years earlier, and and that was that. Um, so that was kind of one of their initial challenges. On top of everything the BEF was struggling with was uh, really convincing the men to commit to fighting in France. We've talked about Sir John French's attitudes uh, about the French army and the French officers. He was also a, um, a believer in social class. So in the chapter Sombre et Meuse, uh, Tuckman writes about Sir John French meeting with the uh, high commander of the, the French armed forces, Joffre. She said, quote, next day, August 16th, so this is 1914, Sir John visited GQG, that's the uh, French high command, at Vitry, where Joffre discovered him to be firmly attached to his own ideas and anxious not to compromise his army. Sir John French, in his turn, was not impressed, owing perhaps to a British officer's sensitivity to social background. The struggle to republicanize the French army had produced an unfortunate proportion, from the British point of view, of officers who were not gentlemen." End quote. Beginning with Napoleon, the French army instituted a policy of meritocracy. So you would, you would get to the top based on your merit. I, I mean, obviously there's always gonna be questions of social differences and stuff like that. But the British army in 1914 was still very firmly entrenched in centuries of, of tradition where the officers were gentlemen, the officers came from the, the higher classes, they did not talk to the men, they, not, they did not mingle with the men at all. And you see this in Sir John French. He was of the opinion that oh, too many of these French officers are, are, are lowborn. They don't know how to be officers, for one, and even worse, they don't know how to be gentlemen. When you read The Guns of August, 
and you really get through it. It's not hard to see why it won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, like I said in the introduction, Tuckman really brought these characters to life. People like uh, Joff and Sir John French and, you know, the Kaiser, people like that. Today we've looked at uh, three key things that I wanted to use the Guns of August to kind of illustrate. Um, we looked at the Schlieffen Plan, which was one of the most critical um, aspects of that first breakneck uh, four to six weeks of the war. Um, Tuckman wrote a great deal about the Schlieffen Plan, both its planning and implementation. So, so that's kind of why I wanted to bring that up in this podcast. As she also did a great deal of research on the British Expeditionary Force, which is why I talked about that. And the last thing I wanted to touch on in this episode was the turning of public opinion uh, away from Germany in the first year of the war. Um, maybe they just got a little too focused on the enemy in front of them and maybe didn't pay enough attention to the opinions of neutral countries or the opinions of countries that may become involved eventually. But that's kind of what I wanted to touch on today was the Schlieffen plan, the public opinion about Germany and the, and the BEF. And I, and I hope I've done that. I, I hope uh, through what I've said and, and through what Tuckman has said, we've kind of cleared up some of those things and uh, maybe you learned something. I hope you did. So in any case, thank you so much for listening. This has been Bite Size History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. <laughs>